Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Can I encourage you to take your seats quickly, please? I encourage you to take your seats quickly, please, so that we can restart. Um, try and grab some time back for you for um, going and seeing Tank and Paddle. Okay, thank you very much, and welcome back to the second session of our bar and nightclub conference. Uh, we now have a, a couple of innovative operators to give you their overview on the future of late night and where it's going. First up, Charlie Gilks, who's founder of Inception Group. He's going to talk about the company's nine-year journey in opening some of the most innovative venues in central and southwest London, including Maggie's, Bunga Bunga, Mr. Fogg's, and Cahoots. Charlie. Thank you, Kate. I don't have a band, I'm afraid, but uh, I wasn't sure. I, wasn't, I didn't realize I could be invited. Um, yeah, I'm Charlie, uh, one of the founders of Inception Group. My business partner is Duncan Sterling. Um, we've been going for coming up to 10 years uh, next year, um, and we have six sort of core brands. Uh, we will turn over over 20 million uh, net this year, employ 350 people, um, and we've got 11, we'll have 11 sites uh, open uh, by the end of the year with, with more to open next year. Everything's still uh, in London. Uh, we've grown organically uh, through retained profits until this year when we've taken debt for the first time. Um, our business is all about experiences. Um, our mission statement is to entertain people with unique and memorable experiences. So these are the brands, and I'm going to show you a short video which outlines kind of what we do. I can't find them yet, so if we leave it down here, we can get the mic up. More awkward for We've got a couple of members of the panel who aren't three, who aren't mic'd up yet. Tom Kidd. Okay, and Aaron Meller. Yeah, they need to be taken up to the back to um, get mic'd up. So this all started back in 2009 when we opened the Speakeasy Barts. We saw a little residence bar within a nondescript apartment building, and we thought we could turn a disadvantage into an advantage. 
We'd seen the speakeasy, please don't tell, in New York. No one had really done a speakeasy in London before. Um, and there was no on-street signage, 650 apartments. And it felt like a very sleepy block, somewhere you wouldn't expect to find a bar. This is what it looked like on the, on the bottom right when we found it, very sort of white and, and uninteresting. So the first uh, venture was Bart's. Um, we, we did it on a 30,000 pound budget. Um, we had no money to spend any more than that. Um, it was a site no one wanted, but we had no track records, so we didn't have many options. Um, it was the height of the credit crunch, 50 bars and pubs a week were closing in the UK. So we did something very different, and when you don't have money to spend, you have to use a lot of creativity and imagination. Um, this is Bart's today, so we've had a little bit of a facelift, but going into its 10th year, it's had like-for-like like like growth every year since it traded. Um, so it looks a little bit smarter. Um, we, we started using teapots, which we bought from car boot, boot sales to, for cocktails. Um, it was really out of necessity because we couldn't afford um, any nice uh, vessels. Um, now we see most bars are, are using them, but at the time it was a slightly different idea. Uh, we had a lot of press about the sort of the, the moment. This was in the Sunday Times, um, the moment stealth clubbing, um, and then we're constantly trying to evolve and think of new ways to uh, get the column inches, whether it's interesting ingredients we're using or other sort of uh, events. Uh, Twitter was taking off in 2009, and we created a real buzz. Um, Twitter was in its early days, and we were known as London's worst-kept secret. We never get, gave out our address. People had to find us. People talked about the journey, look, going through back street kitchens and walking into the wrong place, and that was part of the fun. Um, we also rewarded regulars with key cards. Uh, there wasn't a membership for sale, and if you're a real regular, you got your own tankard above the bar. Uh, Instagram is obviously now more important than Twitter for us, and we're constantly trying to provide interesting content um, for a small bar as over 20,000 followers, which is pretty good. Uh, the next for, uh, for, that we opened was Maggie's. Uh, this is a 1980s nightclub. We only play 1980s music still. Um, it's named after Maggie because Maggie was prime minister from 79 to 90. A lot of people were famous in the early uh, 80s or the late 80s, but she was famous for that whole decade. Uh, we play her speeches in the loos. Uh, our loo attendant uh, didn't know who she was uh, when he started. He's now an expert on her foreign policy. Um, and uh, we have very kitsch, uh, elaborate uh, cocktails in a truly 80s way. You'll find the waitresses uh, on roller skates, and we get a lot of lookalikes. Uh, we actually, before he sadly died, we had George Michael lookalike, and he was so good that there was a famous journalist in there tweeting at him, saying, this is the best moment of my life, George. Um, but he never got any replies. Um, and, uh, but then it's part of the fun, and we have, we have a great time with Maggie's. Uh, got a lot of press when it opened. There's the Evening Standard. And even The Guardian wrote about us, um, maybe not in such favorable terms. Um, so having had the success of Maggie's, we later thought we would try and do it all over again with a different concept called Disco, which we opened in um, Soho. But Disco uh, didn't have the same success as Maggie's. Um, it was our first failure, and we learned a huge amount from that. Um, it was only open uh, three nights a week, um, and we had a similar number of entrants through the door as Maggie's. It was one of those almost cult movies that some people really love but never made any money. Um, and we quickly realized we needed to change this. We only opened at 11 p.m. We opened for four, four hours every night for three days a week, um, and we just couldn't do enough revenue that way. So, and most of the people around there were in offices, and they had, they had left um, to go back home by 11 at night. So we had something in the office known as Operation C, and we worked the hardest we've ever, we've ever worked to develop a new concept, a bar concept called Cahoots. Um, and that reopened uh, six weeks later in 2015 and has been a huge success. It's open seven days a week and compared to 12 hours a week, uh, seven days a week and compared to six, uh, 12 hours a week, it's 68 hours a week. 
So this is Cahoots, um, again, working with the location we have rather than trying to turn a disadvantage into an advantage, rather than sort of pretending we're an underground bar overground, we thought what had to be underground, and of course that was a tube station. Uh, there are lots and lots of uh, Japanese tourists who turn up wanting their train home. You get a bit surprised when they find the carriage doesn't move. Um, but people do, I often hear them in there saying, wow, this is an amazing you know, tube station. They really do buy into our narrative. Um, here it is, decorated uh, for Christmas last year. Um, some, more, some more pictures. The Vera Lynn, our best-selling cocktail, and Cockney Rining slang for gin. And you can see our carriage there. Um, so at, at the stage that we opened Cahoots, I was getting every single email from lost property to bookings. And I went, remember going for a meeting, um, and I had a full, I had a BlackBerry in those days, and I had a full battery. And I looked at my uh, BlackBerry at the end of the meeting, and it had 1%, and I had 7,500 emails. I wasn't quite sure what had happened, but um, a bit of press had gone out on BuzzFeed, reached 6.5 million people, and it was the day before we had uh, online bookings. So our reservationists were so stressed, we had to get a head masseuse in to look after them, um, and we were booked out for three and a half months. This was a nice problem to have, but it also meant that um, we, we actually alienated a lot of our local regulars who couldn't get in for weeks and weeks. So... Um, Soon after, it made the whole company go onto online bookings. And now, whenever we open a, a venue, we, um, we always make sure we, we kind of block out some space to look after our bread and butter, our local crowd. Uh, there, there is us in the Evening Standard again. But Cahoots has been an amazing business. And even after, you know, during our hottest summer on record, we were, we were full throughout it, which for a basement opening at 4 o'clock is fantastic. And it's, you know, I think definitely the disco experience for us has been one of our greatest learning curves. Here the staff, they massively embrace the uh, concepts, dressing up. Um, our menu, uh, the Cahoots newspaper, which is a big thing on Instagram. We've got nearly 40,000 followers for this business. And we do lots of events because we feel we've got such a strong following for this uh, venue. So this was us on HMS Belfast. Um, we did a massive party for 1,000 people that sold out in two days in the, under the arches in Waterloo. It just shows how engaged the Cahoots following are and how much the 40s trend is buzzing. Um, Moving on, this is a business that actually sits outside Inception Group um, that my business partner and I own uh, with our wives. Um, it's called Squirrel. Um, I used to feel that eating healthy food, I felt like I was being dragged to the doctors, and I, I wanted to do something which was a bit more fun. So we opened this uh, two years ago. It's trading well. Um, we've, we're now doing several Deliveroo uh, dark kitchens with this as well. Um, it's profitable, uh, just. I've definitely learned that selling vodka is, has better margins than avocados. Um, but um, again, we did things slightly differently inside, so I uh, created it like a treehouse. Our, our, our slogan is nuts about health. It's a sort of healthy hangout um, where you can customize everything, and everything is super healthy. Um, everything's gluten-free, dairy-free, uh, and sugar-free, and our dressings in particular are something that have a real uh, following and something we might consider uh, branching out and, and selling as a separate item. Um, we have lots of ambassadors. Again, we're trying to really attract the male market. Leveson Wood created a salad. Uh, Peter Crouch created a salad for us last month. That's Heather Knight, the captain <coughs> of the England cricket team. Um, that's some of the uh, media attention we've had through doing this. Um, this was us dressing up as squirrels to launch <laughs> our Deliveroo uh, campaign. We always get involved with the, uh, with the brands. So Bunga Bunga, um, this isn't chronological, but this was actually our third site we opened in Battersea. We felt that London was spoilt for choice when it came to places that you could eat every cuisine uh, in the world, um, but there weren't enough fun places. Um, there weren't enough places that actually fully focused on atmosphere. So we, you know, our, our theory was people used to eat, drink, and then go to the theatre. Now people want theatre when they're eating and drinking. So this was the first one uh, in Battersea. 
um, slightly unique interior. We do meter-long pizzas and a menu made for sharing. Lots of drinks vessels like the Fiat uh, 500 um, and the Vespa. You can drink out of a Berlusconi head too and a Mario Monti. This is it buzzing in the evening and it slowly transgresses into a real party. So people start with their drinks, have their pizzas and then um, get involved. And you can see it later on in the evening here. Our gondoliers behind the bar for different live bands, different entertainers every evening. Again, this is some of the, uh, the press. This, uh, the, the, the head you can see there is actually before it got glazed because the Evening Standard were, uh, were pushing us to get the picture out, but it's a lot browner in true life. Uh, one of the most uh, terrifying moments of my life was getting an email from the news desk at the Telegraph saying, uh, the food reviewer has been in and can you supply high uh, resolution images um, for the paper at the weekend? Um, I've never felt so sick in my life as we weren't expecting to get critically um, reviewed. And I remember that feeling going to the local news agents the morning it came out in absolute terror. But um, we were slightly amazed that he loved it and, um, and it helped us um, get off to a, to a great start. Um, we have got a lot of fun with Bunga Bunga. You may have seen um, during the Euros, just shortly after the Brexit vote, uh, we cover the whole building uh, with, 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 with uh, wooden boards and behind it, painted it in the colors of the Italian flag. Uh, within six hours, the council went absolutely nuts um, and sent us all sorts of angry emails. They fell for our bait uh, and um, we got loads and loads of press. And um, it was fantastic. It went absolutely everywhere. The phones kept on ringing. And we had a, a nice conversation with the council, actually. And we agreed to repaint it after the Euros. They gave, up, gave us an extension of the time we could have it like that. Actually, a lot of the residents loved it. We were on BBC and ITV News. And they were desperately trying to find residents locally who could say something cross about it. And no one really did. Um, but um, when we did come to have to repaint it, Duncan and I made sure we did it ourselves and uh, started with little white tears all along the side of the building. But anyway, we had a lot of fun, and here, here are uh, Italian staff having a demonstration outside. <laughs> so this is the second Bunga Bunga. Uh, it took us five years to find the right site uh, to open the second, and this is the one in Covent Garden. Uh, it was, it's very, very hard to find something with a, a late license. Um, we, we were obsessed about this idea of walking through the front on street level um, through a meat locker into the secret world, very Goodfellas style. Um, but this is uh, the one here. We've got a stage with a full house band, uh, lots of different acts. It's much more show-based and probably a more refined version of the original in Battersea. Uh, here it is with the various acts throughout the night. The, the Bunga Boys, our band, who sadly didn't come join me today. Um, our jugglers and different acts. Uh, Wednesday nights, the musical show. Thursday nights is Burlesconi, the story of Burlesconi uh, to Burlesque. Friday is the Italian circus and Saturday is the variety show. That's our Reva that you can sit in uh, for a night. And uh, Sheridan Smith uh, came and opened it for us and sang some wonderful songs. And it was the first time she had uh, um, sung in a long time. And so it made page three of the Evening Standard, which was a great way to kickstart it. Uh, airline magazines we find uh, absolutely fantastic. EasyJet magazine is read by four and a half million people uh, every month. And they are completely captive in the airplanes. So, and they're, you know, they're highly engaged. They don't know much about the city. So we find that's pretty much the best press that we can get. Uh, social media, again, you can see you know, 22,000 likes, 5,000 likes. Again, getting the right influence in is a great way for us because it's got no real street frontage and it's very destination, so we're constantly having to raise awareness with these venues. 
Mr. Foggs uh, is our, was our first foray into the West End. It imagines the home of the fictitious explorer, Phileas Fogg. It's based around an eccentric Englishman and his travels abroad and all the things he's collated throughout his journey. So here's the original in Mayfair. It was a small uh, backstreet pub. Um, we found a seven-foot recess in the ceiling um, to, to um, expose this amazing um, high ceilings, which we've kind of made uh, you know, very traditional. A lot of people come in, and we had some Americans in the other day who said we're ready to go through for dinner now, but actually this is the only room. Um, it's, it's smaller than people think, but it's um, you know, the, the, the largest contributor profit-wise for the whole group now. So here it is from uh, the outside and our little terrace on the side, which was formerly our air conditioning. It's been fantastic, uh, especially with the smoking ban. Again, because of the theme of it around travel and exploration, there's so much, it's such an open-ended concept. Um, we can do so much around different nationalities. That's us celebrating Chinese New Year on the top right, uh, Burns Night on the left, and some of the different cocktails. We're regularly taking guests out around the square in a horse and cart and trying to surprise them with different ideas. Um, some of the press that we received, uh, the Metro on the left, um, Evening Standard Magazine, and Time Out on the right. Uh, the cocktails are key to our our brand, Mr. Foggs, it's probably the most product-focused brand, and we work really, really hard with an executive uh, bar manager across the Foggs brand and recruiting really, really good bar staff uh, to ensure we deliver that product. So I think one of the biggest risks to our business is that our, our, our venues could be faddy, which is why we really have to focus on that product and that service to ensure regular retained businesses, and uh, regular retained customers, and actually that we're not like an ice bar where people might go once and then feel like they've done it and not visit again. Uh, we sent the first cocktail to space, um, which was fun until it landed up a tree 100 miles from the launch site. Um, but again, this was e EasyJet magazine, and it got loads and loads of press and provided us with some fun images. It's quite like the kind of thing that Jules Verne, who wrote Around the World in 80 Days, would have done. Um, he was a futurist in the 19th century and helped us inspire the idea. Um, on April Fool's Day last year, or two years ago, we said that we were launching um, the first hot air balloon bar. Uh, it got picked up from quite a few places. We, of course, weren't. Uh, but we got so many requests for it. Um, we launched a cocktail, but we also took people up in a hot air balloon and did several experiential evenings with, with customers having cocktails um, high above the clouds. This was the uh, Mr. Fogg's flying machine we did last summer um, over the Thames, people drinking from height. And the next slide, I'm going to show you a, a short video. Uh, this was on BuzzFeed, again, showing our cocktails, Mr. Fogg's. You can see on the left-hand side, it had uh, nearly 7 million views. Um, you know, you, you can't really buy publicity like that. It was, um, you know, tens and tens of thousands of people commenting, tagging their friends, um, which leads to, a, you know, a huge increase of website traffic and bookings. So the, the second venue we opened in the Mr. Fogg's uh, brand was Mr. Fogg's uh, Tavern downstairs and Gin Parlor uh, upstairs. 
Um, we're very much trying to build a collection, not a chain. Um, we hope that by going to one Mr. Foggs, you want to visit the other rather than going to one and feeling you've been to them all. They're all slightly different. Uh, the tavern downstairs, we, we imagine a Gertrude Fogg, you can see on the side, was an actress in the day, Phileas's aunt, um, and she left her apartment upstairs to Phileas, which has become the uh, Mr. Fogg's gin parlor, and to her housekeeper, Fanny McGee, has inherited the uh, tavern downstairs. So it's part of the story. And the, the tavern downstairs is open to people walking in, and the gin parlor is mainly bookings. Uh, when we started, uh, here's some of the Instagram. Uh, we do our, a floral display uh, throughout the year in the different seasons. It's amazing, given the high footfall, um, how much traction we've had. They're a little mix. They're doing a, a gin safari, and you can see over half, a quarter of a million likes on that. Uh, this was it before. Um, again, you see a lot of people in there who are fooled by the interior and think it's one of the most ancient pubs in London. Um, but you can see how I found it on the right-hand side and how it is today. It's a small space, but on a highly primed street. This was our first prime site. Uh, it was a competitive bidding process. There were over 50 operators bidding for it uh, through Shaftesbury, um, who were a fantastic landlord. And actually, for them, it wasn't about who paid the highest rent. It was about who had a concept they could really believe in. Um, here's another one of, of downstairs now. Uh, we do a Sunday roast. We do punch by tap. Uh, we make sure our beer taps are all gunpowder sleeves, so there's something slightly different. And then upstairs, the gin parlor. Uh, when we started, gin was growing. We thought it might be near its peak, but it's kept on growing, and we serve 250 different types of gin and 25 different types of tonic, and it's been very, very popular uh, for pre-theater, post-theater, and people going for a drink before and after dinner in the area. Here's our gin room, and people doing a gin tasting, gin safari. They get their own apron and hat, and it's a fun interactive thing for groups of friends, officers to do after work. This is the most, uh, well, this, one of the more recent Mr. Foggs. This opened in uh, July, Mr. Foggs House of Botanicals in Fitzrovia. It imagines uh, the home that Phileas has created for all the, the cuttings and plants he's collected on his journey. Downstairs, there's no reservations. It's open for people to walk in. Um, we serve lots of cocktails, but also uh, draft beer. It's somewhere that we hope is accessible, that, that groups of men and women can go to and get what both of them, both groups get what they want. Um, upstairs is a little more formal, and we take reservations up there. It's like a more of a sort of uh, kind of drawing room feeling. And here it is uh, on an evening. The menu is the language of flowers. So in the Victorian times, um, each People used to give flowers, obviously roses for love, but there were other meanings and other flowers, so the 12 uh, different flowers and different cocktails. Every Mr. Foggs has a core estate menu with our favorite 40 cocktails, but also has a sign signature menu uh, with 12 unique to that site, and that's, again, trying to build a collection, not a chain. This is the most recent to open, uh, Mr. Foggs' uh, Society of Exploration, a society set up to celebrate travel and exploring with him and other famous explorers, some of them real, some of them fictional, uh, this is just off the Strand. This opened uh, four weeks ago, and we've created uh, the world's first automated Negroni machine, uh, which I'll show you Phileas himself launching now. Welcome to my new society of exploration on the Strand. I'm excited to unveil my new mechanical mixologist, the first of its type in the world, a revolutionary invention which creates the finest Negroni. Perfectly mixing a unique combination of Star of Bombay Gin, Martini Reserva Speciale Rubino, and Martini Reserva Speciale Bitter. And 
Yeah, I should mention Bacardi and uh, Bombay Sapphire have been very generous in, in helping us create things like that because they, uh, it wasn't cheap. Um, and this is our team here, a fantastic bar team, having some fun in our opening week. So we had another idea here uh, when we launched, obviously opening three venues in a close, uh, a, you know, a short amount of time, we needed to have different strategies for each one. So we advertised the world's best job, sending two people around the world uh, to write a travel journal about their trip, retracing Phileas's steps, and uh, collecting ingredients from each continent to make a cocktail. Uh, the story went absolutely viral. We've got on the news again several times. And uh, Leveson Wood picked the winners, who are the two lucky people here. Um, so they're currently on their trip and will be coming back soon to give us a talk and tell us how they've done. Um, you can follow them on the hashtag Mr. Fogg's journey uh, called the Travel Project, the Lucky Winners. But we had over 10,000 applications for this job, uh, which was amazing and uh, really got people's imagination going. Uh, you can see some of the press um, that we got went absolutely around the world. We were even talking into the news in India and Good Morning Australia. And it was a, an amazing way to uh, really get people talking about just a small bar off the Strand. And here they are. This is the start of their travels. And they're doing a weekly post for us. Um, it's in Italy. That's them planning the trip. And um, more recently, they're in India. This is the next one of our, our venues to open, uh, Mrs. Fogg's this time. Um, Maritime Club and Distillery opens in Broadgate Circle, uh, just by Liverpool Street Station in the city. Uh, Mrs. Fogg, uh, if you've read the book, was an Indian lady called Aouda, who he met on his travels. And we're creating a, a big steamer strip along the side a maritime club, and then a fully functional distillery downstairs. So that opens in a, a couple of weeks' time. Uh, we're serving uh, Indian food, Indian snack food um, in tiffin tins, doing a tiffin tea. Afternoon tea is a very big thing for us at Mr. Fogg's throughout the whole uh, collection. And a little you know, mention of our, before I finish, of our staff at Inception Group. We've got a fantastic team, a head office of about 40 of us, um, there's a great family feel within the business. We do a, a group conference abroad every year where we take all of our head office, our development managers, and our management teams. Um, about 70 of us went to Barcelona the year before Naples, the year before that Marrakesh. Um, we do office drinks every Friday. Um, and you know, I think what I'm so proud of now with the, with the team is a lot of the creative ideas are actually coming from uh, people who are working within the company rather than from Duncan and I. So looking at future challenges, I think recruitment is the one that I'm most worried about. It's terrifying how few people are applying to jobs. Uh, we now have someone within the business uh, heading up talent uh, so that we can try and nurture people and work on retention as much as anything else. Um, getting our team to adapt to this growth. You know, we've never grown at this, at this rate before. We've been opening one venue a year, and we're opening four this year. Um, also maintaining the existing estate. It's very uh, tempting for our centralized events team to uh, get distracted um, by our new shiny venues and to neglect the old ones. So that's something we're constantly having to um, you know, make sure that, you know, that they, they get the love they deserve. Uh, licensing, I know we're going to talk about a little bit about that later, but again, constant challenges with licensing and the pressures of residents and areas being developed. So you know, Bunga Bunga, when we first opened, had no residents anywhere near it. We've now got lots of residents down the road who aren't very happy um, that we're there, um, but we've been there longer than them. Um, cash flow, something we're constantly having to look at. Now we've got debts, we've got bank covenants, so we've got to keep sure that actually our existing estate uh, produces the results we need. So it's the, you know, the first time we're really feeling that pressure. Um, and competition for sites in London. We're not just competing against other London operators, we're competing against people from around the world um, and around the UK who want a flagship in London. I think it is the tide is turning a little bit. We're seeing premiums come down. That is a constant challenge for us.
few little images to uh, finish on, and uh, I don't think it's time for questions, so um, if you do want to ask me anything, uh, that's my Instagram, that's my email. Get in touch, as long as you're not selling anything. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Charlie. I always think it's, it's great to see the, the latest flights of fancy and imaginations to, to go and visit. And if you haven't seen any of Charlie's venues, do go out and about in, in London because it is, they're so individual. Um, net final uh, operator speaker of the afternoon um, is Andrew Stones, who's probably going to amplify Charlie's points about rapid rollout, cash flow, and all the demands of new business owners having just been bought out by Stonegate after uh, celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. Um, Andrew is Managing Director of Cocktail Bar Brand Be It One, who's going to talk about expanding into the regions, market-leading like-for-like sales, and producing a highly differentiated cocktail experience as well as future plans. Andrew, over to you. Thank you very much, Kate. Uh, that all sounded very grand, um, but actually I'm not going to talk to you about anything new today. Um, I'm going to talk to you just about the basics of Beat One. We've been around for 20 years, uh, and fundamentally nothing has changed within the business, and I'm really proud of that. Could I just have a show of hands for how many of you have been to Beat One? So most of you. So I am preaching to the converted. This is a little bit about me. Um, I've been uh, with Beat One for eight years now. I've been in the industry for almost 30 years. Um, I absolutely love it. We have a phenomenal industry. I mean, hospitality is just brilliant, and we, we get talked down so much. Kate was talking about it earlier, um, but I'm really proud to be part of Beat One. I mean, there's people here like James from Cobas who, you know, he would love to be in hospitality, but he runs an IT business instead, and he just sort of holds on to our coattails. Um, that's probably pretty much the same with the guys from Zonal. We do have the best industry. Um, I don't have a live band. I haven't even got a knob gag. I, I really do apologize. Um, but what I will do is I will talk to you about our mission statement. Um, our aim is to have the best bars by being the best hosts, and, and that's what we do. And Beat One was founded by three ex-TGI Fridays bartenders on the 22nd of May, 98. Uh, they took out car loans, um, they maxed out their credit cards, and they bought the first bar, which was an old Indian restaurant on Battersea Rise. In fact, Charlie and I were talking about it earlier. Um, you know, he walked past it, went there, it was a little bit of a pickup joint, it's fair to say, and um, it, it is now. Um, it hasn't fundamentally changed. Um, they learned a lot, the founders, from TGI Fridays. Uh, at the time that they set up Be At One, Fridays were starting to focus much more on food, and they wanted to open a bar that they wanted to drink in. So we very much started with the principle of delivering great cocktails, great service, in a great atmosphere. This isn't rocket science. It was the same 20 years ago as it is now. It was 30 years ago when I started the industry. But sometimes we can lose sight of that. And we can focus a little bit too much, I think, on the, the latest Instagrammable moment. Um, those are the fundamental basics that we need to be focusing on as an industry. Um, I went into a casual dining restaurant over the weekend, and after not being acknowledged for 15 minutes, I walked out. That's why casual dining is not great. If they had great food and great service and a great atmosphere, I'd have stayed, but they wouldn't acknowledge me. I was there with my children. There were empty tables in the restaurant, and there was nobody there. Um, so 
as I say, the, these are the basics. We, we recruit great bartenders, and we train them really well. Um, that's our USP, but it, it isn't rocket science. Um, in order to reassure myself that I'm focusing on the right things, um, I commission research from the likes of CGA as well. And this is what they tell us about why our guests drink in Beer at One, or why they first came to Beer at One. Uh, and this is quite an important stat for me. So 46% of our guests come through friends' recommendations, and 9% come from colleagues' re recommendations. So 55% of our guests come because they've been recommended by a friend or colleague to come to Beer at One. I'm quite proud of that. Um, we've been holding the Be It One Guest Survey now for five years, and that number has been pretty consistent the whole time. This is another stat that I'm quite proud of. So 33% of our guests are satisfied, 62% are very satisfied about their experience of Be It One. And when we ask our guests what, you know, what makes Be It One stand out, it's the atmosphere, it's the drinks, great cocktails, happy hours up there as well. This isn't rocket science, but this is what we do day in and day out and have done for the last 20 years. So this is just a short video. It's actually our recruitment video. So if at the end of it you really want to join, just grab me during one of the breaks. <coughs> Who wouldn't want to work for a company like that? So we talk within the business. It's one of the things that I learned from the fans of Beer at One about four wall theory. Fundamentally, we focus about what's going on in our four walls. It's good theory. Um, how do we do that? It's the brand pillars. So we look at great service, great cocktails, and great atmosphere. And in order to deliver great service, it's all about recruiting personality. And then we train skill. We have a fantastic training program for our bartenders. Actually, with the acquisition from Stonegate, our management training program is going to improve as well. So it's not all bad news for any of you that are concerned about us. We're in a really good place. 
We have retention plans for our bartenders, and we have development plans for all of them. Bartenders really are part of our USP within Beat One. And as you saw from the video, we celebrate success. We have a fantastic bartender challenge program, and we have a, a, an absolutely awesome staff party. Believe you me, it's good fun. Um, Service culture, we don't have 17 steps of service in Beat One. It's all very, very simple. We are a simple business. We work on 5, 60, 30. So we want to acknowledge our guests within five seconds. All of our cocktails can be made within 60 seconds. So if you order four drinks, it'll take four minutes. And then change back in 30 seconds. We look at those really important moments of truth for our guests, and we make sure that we deliver on them. And our guests acknowledge that. They come back to us. It helps us grow as a business. These are the reasons that our guests like Beer One bartenders, because they're friendly, they're fun, they're skilled, the theatre of making cocktails, and quick speed of service. Obviously, the friendly bit we can't train in. We recruit for that, but everything else, we like to give them an environment where they can perform really well as bartenders. So the team are highly skilled. They have a lot of fun at work. They're memorable characters. We really encourage our bartenders to be themselves. And it's very sociable. Whether or not you go to be at one at happy hour or you go there at three o'clock in the morning, you're going to have a good time. And 
they fell to get more eyes and became like two eyes and swallowed full of eyes. The great thing is that we finished the event with 27,000 pound nets in only four stations. We were all there for each other. And no matter if no one couldn't go for a cigarette break or for a meal, we were just there having fun, jumping on the bar top, trying to make the best experience even for our guests. We had a bartender called Camille. So that's our USP. It's the team, it's the people that work for us. Great cocktails, obviously really important. We have 101 cocktails on the menu. We have an ongoing development process. We work very, very hard. I have to taste a lot of cocktails every year to uh, whittle them down to the 10, 15, 20 that we put on a new menu. Uh, and we have a development bar. We, uh, we actually have a second concept that nobody knows about. It's uh, one of the worst stroke, best kept secrets in, uh, in Soho. So we, uh, we have this cocktail pub that we operate with a lab downstairs that allows us to distill our own spirits and actually to innovate ourselves and to come up with some really interesting different cocktails and, and not rely on the brands feeding them to us. Again, that innovation is just so critical. We've just launched our new menu and we've got our first vegan cocktails on the menu. Now, as pretty much all of you will know, we've always had vegan cocktails. Um, but we're actually marketing them now as vegan cocktails because there is that demand and people want to know. So we are specifically targeting that market. As I said earlier, all of the cocktails are designed to be made in 60 seconds. We have really great quality ingredients. We're innovative. Yeah, Instagrammable, I wasn't going to mention it, but it is important now. The cocktails need to be highly aesthetic. And we're consistent. So if you go into a beer at one, whether it's in Manchester, Leeds, or in Covent Garden, all of the cocktails are exactly the same. They're really great quality. And I guess like that as well. So 
why do our guests drink in beer at one? Because the cocktails taste great. I mean, it is reassuring. I and mean, obviously, this, this research isn't cheap, any of you that have worked with CGA. But it is reassuring sometimes when you get the results back that you look at it, great, we're doing the right things. We're focusing on great tasting cocktails. Who knew? Who knew? Uh, wide range of cocktail. That, that is actually quite reassuring for me because I always fight for you know, that kind of 100 cocktails on the menu. It goes against common thinking because it's quite complicated. It takes us longer to train our bartenders because we have so many different drinks on the menu. But our guests genuinely like it, and obviously quality being good as well. So our cocktails are really important. So again, those are the four things that we focus on. High quality ingredients, innovation, need to be visually appealing and consistent. And the atmosphere, again, most of you have been to be at one, so you'll know that we do have great atmosphere in our bars. We train that in. It doesn't happen by chance. We train our managers on how to manage the atmosphere on shift. We let the bartenders be themselves. and We know who our guests are, so we spend a lot of time talking to our guests, and we listen to them, and we act on it. So over the last six weeks, again, we've had guest forums in our bars, and we do have things like this, like our guest survey, and we, we act on the feedback that they give us. In terms of atmosphere, again, it's not rocket science. It's all about music. It's all about lighting, getting the temperature right, and making it smell nice. I mean, again, that's a challenge for us, isn't it, in, in the late-night business? It's the smell of your venue. If you walk in and it doesn't smell great, you want to walk back out again. So we do spend a lot of time and effort making sure that, uh, that that's right for us. And high-tempo energy. We are good-time party bars. But it's important we get that right at the right time. We don't want to start the party at 5 o'clock. We want the evening to evolve. And we work very hard on ergonomic bar design. Um, through the Stonegate acquisition, one of the uh, members of the, the Stonegate board said to me, you know, how come your bar teams all look so attractive? They actually don't. We use red neon underneath the bar counter, which makes them look healthy all of the time. If you see them during the day, bless their little cotton socks. They, they are not quite as attractive. Again, one of, the, uh, one of the downsides of our industry, they, are, you know, they, they work at night. They're quite pale people. In terms of uh, you know, the atmosphere and the drinks, you know, what, what's key for our guests? Again, I, I'm not standing here today and telling you that the name of the Beer at One guest is whatever it may be, because actually it doesn't matter. When we talk about our guests, the whole ethos around Beer at One is we want to have a broad appeal. We're not targeting a female of 28 years old who works in marketing. My mum is in her 70s and she loves Beer at One. So we look at what's important for people that are over 55 just as much as we do 18 to 34. And then at different times of day, at different parts of the week, we focus on those things and make sure that we get them right. I'm not actually going to talk about this now because I've removed some slides, but not this one, in order to keep to time, Kate. So we do focus on outside of the, the four walls, but actually today is all about inside the four walls. So to summarise, as, as Be at One, we do one thing and we do one thing well. So we don't have food, we don't have sport, we don't do draft, we're about cocktail bars. So 68% of our mix is cocktails. Our team and our guests are very much at the heart of everything that we do. I mean, frankly, if we don't listen to what our guests want and then don't deliver it, we're not going to be around in another 20 years' time. And the future's really right, bright for Beer at One. I think, uh, I mean, Charlie mentioned it earlier, you know, finding sites has been a real challenge for us 
in growing. And since the acquisition from Stonegate, um, that's changing. I had planned to open six new bars next year. That's now going to be at least 12. So I have different challenges to deal with um, in terms of accelerating the growth program and recruiting faster and harder than we ever have done before. But be it one is, is going to be around hopefully in 10, 20, 30, 40 years' time, and we are going to continue to grow under the, uh, the ownership of, of Stonegate. And we are the best bars by being the guest, best hosts. Thank you. Because we do have time. If uh, there are any quick questions that anybody's got for Andrew, Paul, you've got, just shout. Uh, the yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it is fair to say that they are being exceptionally respectful of Fiat One. I think it's a different type of acquisition for Stonegate. Um, and it's, you know, it's a business that they really do plan to scale up. Um, my job is, is about ensuring that that happens, quite frankly. But I think you know, we, we still, you know, we've got our separate board. We're keeping the office in Putney. I've still got exactly the same team that I had prior to the founders leaving. And uh, bless their cotton socks, you know, they worked very hard over the last 20 years, but probably slightly less so over the last few years in terms of the direction of the business. So nothing's going to fundamentally change. We have had discussions around you know, investment plans. We invest a little bit more in some of our sites, um, but everything's been signed off that, that I've asked for so far. So I, you know, I couldn't ask for more at the moment. Thank you very much. Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. And now our final keynote speaker of the afternoon is uh, leading licensing barrister Sarah Clover. Sarah was the expert witness when the House of Lords did an inquiry into the Licensing Act and licensing reform, um, and has also worked with us on a number of legal challenges to local licensing policies. Um, so she's going to give us her personal perspective on the key legal issues and developments bar and nightclub operators face in the current climate. Sarah. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, just what you need, isn't it? Four o'clock on a Monday afternoon is a bit of law. Uh, but before I get started, I've got a question for Andrew, if you don't mind. Uh, where can you buy those red neon lights that make you look healthy and attractive? I'll sell them the And do they come in portable units? As if you need oh, So glad I stayed. Um, <laughs> actually, this lighting is... It's not too bad. Um, yeah, Barrister, sorry about that. I don't have any videos. We have quills. Um, but I do, about halfway through, I do have uh, a slide with a polar bear on it. So uh, if you can hang on that long, then, um, then we should be good. So yeah, law, four o'clock, Monday, not great. Um, I'm going to try and make it practical. I was asked to do a personal perspective on developments in... Uh, law and uh, so on and so forth, which I have interpreted as license to, to go on an unexpurgated personal rant about anything that bugs me, and I've been told I can upset anyone I like. Oh, that, that's next week. Oh. Okay. Um, but uh, in any event, um, so sorry, uh, I thought we'd start with the police. Um, and it's not just 
uh, gratuitous abuse. Um, there is a practical point for doing so, and the reason I wanted to start here, because where we're talking about law, it's not just a question of what the law is, it's a question of what our decision makers and our regulators believe that it is, which is not necessarily the same thing. I had an officer, a council officer as it happens, not a police officer, say to me last week um, that she knew that such and such so and so wasn't in fact the law, but in her opinion it was the spirit of the law. And um, that is why we had to do it. Um, and I said I was going to spiritually, judicially review her. Um, and that's how that story ends. Um, so, yeah, um, the law is actually pretty black and white when it comes down to it. It doesn't have a spirit. Um, life, on the other hand, is rarely quite so clear cut. It, it does have grey areas and it does have mix-ups and strange things happening. And that's uh, why it can be quite hard sometimes to say whose fault something is. Um, and very often in, in different situations, it might not be anybody's fault that something happened, something happened in your premises, something happened between your customers and so on and so forth. Or it might be a little bit of fault on the part of a lot of different people. And that's okay in real life, but it's not okay when it comes to the police because the police are professional fault finders. And if it isn't somebody's fault, then they are out of a job. Um, and it's usually your fault because you're usually not running away. So um, that makes it a little bit easier to find you. Um, so policing can be a very difficult job, as we know, and I'm only being slightly tongue-in-cheek here. Uh, it is a difficult job, but for that reason, it can sometimes be quite tempting for the police to take shortcuts and make it a little bit simpler than it would otherwise be. Um, and it is um, these shortcuts that sometimes we have to um, deal with and try and balance out. Um, I want to give you a case study, a case that I worked on not so long ago that you may have actually heard about or come across. It was actually quite a distressing case. It's the case of the club called Radon, which sounds like a relaxing bath product, but they had anything but a relaxing time in 2017 when a young woman uh, got into their premises. Um, she was 17. Um, they'd only been open a few weeks. They'd only had a handful of events, and she was using fake ID. It was very good quality fake ID. Um, it was uh, obtained afterwards so it could be analysed to see what it was. Um, and she wasn't picked up when she went into the premises. Door staff didn't pick this uh, discrepancy up. She wasn't served any alcohol inside the premises. They could say that much. Um, the CCTV demonstrated that. But at some stage during the night, uh, it's likely that she became unwell. The premises could only say that a young woman became unwell in the premises and they took her to one side and cared for her. Probably this one might not have been. Um, but in due course, she wanted to leave with her friends. Now, that young woman had been preloading. She'd been drinking vodka um, before she'd come to Radon and she'd got that from an off-license. And by the time she left the club, it seems as though she was very incapable indeed. And two on-duty police officers later gave evidence to the court to say they couldn't believe... Uh, that the nightclub had derogated from their duty. The staff at the nightclub had derogated from their duty by um, failing to care for that young woman and had watched her walk into the night. And the police officers gave statements uh, about their 
incapability of believing that as they watched her walk into the night. Um, but it wasn't their duty uh, to take care of her. It was the club's duty to take care of her, their duty of care, um, which is all well and good. Uh, the worst of all, was, of all possible things happened to this young woman uh, on her way home. She was uh, sexually attacked very seriously, not once, not twice, but three times, uh, completely unconnected by three completely different men. The horror is indescribable, unimaginable. And the machinery of um, retribution, I suppose, that the local authority and the police brought down to bear on the club as a result was uh, monumental. And a summary review resulted and uh, the license was stripped immediately um, and it was all right on fault that this had happened. Um, the off-license was not uh, tracked down. The men were not tracked down. Um, it was apparently the fault of the door staff who had allowed her into the club underage as to why all of this had happened. And we went to the magistrate's court to try and get the uh, license back again. And there we found something uh, very unusual indeed to the point where I might describe it as rare. Uh, we found a sensible bench. And um, the licensing police officer took to the witness box and after a little light uh, cross-examination beating up, um, he spontaneously combusted with emotion and uh, righteous indignation and was quite clear in his evidence to the magistrates that all of this had happened because the door staff had allowed this underage girl into Radon, and that was the cause and effect. And the, the bench uh, chair just quizzically looked at him and said, do, do you think it's possible, officer? Is it possible at all that you have allowed your emotions to cloud your judgment? I've never heard a magistrate or indeed a councillor ask that question before, uh, and neither apparently had the police officer either, because... Um, he, uh, again, almost uh, melted with emotion as he yelled, no! Um, and that was the end of the case, and we got the license back, and, um, and that was that. But emotions and bias and prejudice and opinions do happen uh, to us, don't they? And that's everybody, so that's us. But that's also the police and magistrates and councillors and officers who work in local authorities. We all have... Uh, opinions and prejudices and so forth, and we have to be uh, aware of them. And why am I telling you this? Why, why is it something that we need to uh, discuss? Well, because <coughs> if we're working in isolation and in working in silos, we can easily believe that it, it only happens to us, or maybe we've made a mistake, or maybe we're being unreasonable. Uh, and going up and down the country and seeing all of these different patterns as I do, I can confirm that it is a, it's a national phenomenon, and I think it is something that needs to be brought out into open debate and discussion. Uh, and this is another uh, manifestation of it, another aspect of it, the presentation against premises, individual, individual licensed premises, of uh, crime statistics, incident statistics, when it comes to accusing you or your staff, um, your premises of something that's happened, um, or the police have decided they're going to bring a review, they want a revocation, whatever else it might be, all of a sudden uh, the history books come out and the past crime logs, incident logs are poured over, not only for your premises but in the locality in which you are situated and you suddenly find 
pie charts and graphs and uh, statistics of all descriptions being presented very beautifully, very, very graphically in lots of different colours sometimes, demonstrating that you and or your street and or your town or, or your neighbourhood or indeed your planet uh, is the most crime-ridden location anywhere in the known universe. And uh, what we have discovered as we, as we have, uh, I say we, I mean lawyery types, uh, as we do more and more of these cases, is that sometimes these um, pictorial representations and these graphical representations are not all that they might appear to be, because of course, obviously, the presentation of the statistical material is only going to be as good and as uh, accurate as the raw data upon which it is based. And a culture has built up, unfortunately, uh, in such cases, in these licensing hearings, committee hearings and magistrates beyond, of having to ask for all of this raw data. So the, the crime logs, the, the CADs, the computer-aided dispatches that the police have relied upon, uh, the, the material on their innkeeper systems, we actually have to see what it is that they have seen on their computer systems and what they have fed into these graphs and representations because uh, it's not always accurate, it's not always relevant. Uh, and I've had all sorts of crimes and uh, incidents that have been apparently identified against premises such as yours, which on a little closer examination might not have quite the punch, excuse the pun, that, that they might otherwise have been thought to have had. So I've had things like um, a dead cat found in the road outside the premises. I've had um, boys playing snowballs. Uh, I've had the landlord of the pub in question who had a heart attack. Uh, which is recorded as an incident against the premises and then put in one of these red bar graphs against the premises when it comes to review. I've had um, a lady who dropped her purse at the bus stop over the road from the premises at nine o'clock in the morning, which is before the premises were open, and uh, wanted to know if anybody had found it. Um, I've had uh, a gentleman who was sitting in a, a pub on a bar stool uh, and suddenly realised he'd been scammed on eBay. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and, and, and all of these are your fault, uh, and all of these can potentially, I mean, these are real examples, and I could go on all afternoon, but I think Kate would be very cross with me if I did, um, but all of these can end up in graphs and pie charts and things like this, attempting to demonstrate to councillors and magistrates that your licence needs to go. And it is important to talk about it, it is important to discuss it. I've actually done a talk very similar to this, to the police at the police training college in Wrighton, and I, and I tried to incentivize them. I tried to explain to them that if they stopped doing that, they would actually put me out of a job and I'd only be able to go on one holiday a year. <laughs> but it doesn't seem to make any difference. And so these practices continue, and you need to be aware that it happens, so you are on the alert in case it happens to you, which it won't, because what possible reason could any uh, officer have to even think about a review of any of your premises. I get that. Of course I do. Um, so that is why I say all of these things uh, to you. They are unfortunately a little bit more common than perhaps they ought to be. And one of the answers may be better training, and that is a real thing. That is something that was uh, recommended by the House of Lords Select Committee that Kate mentioned earlier. Uh, and uh, a recommendation that was accepted by the Home Office that police and indeed councillors would probably benefit from some enhanced training around these topics uh, to make sure of a, a, a better quality and a more consistent experience for licensees, applicants, uh, review respondents and so forth uh, up and down the country to make sure that these things don't uh, get perpetuated. And while I'm having 
uh, my little rant, let's do a quiz. Um, which one of these things is a real thing? Um, a unicorn, the tooth fairy, the Loch Ness Monster, or instant police closure under Section 19 closure notice? I'll give you a minute. And the answer, of course, is the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, I've seen it. You can talk to me afterwards about it if you don't believe me. Um, but instant closure under a Section 19 closure notice is not a real thing. It is a myth. Um, what, in fact, is Section 19? What on earth am I talking about? Well, the police have a number of powers uh, to close licensed premises, and the local authority have got a couple too. Uh, one of them is a hangover from, again, excuse the pun, from previous legislation from the uh, Policing and Crime Act 2001. So it was a closure power that the police always had in relation to licensed premises. In the olden days, it was when they didn't have a license at all. So people selling alcohol without any kind of license. Under the 2003 Act, it's sort of transmogrified into a closure power where premises were not complying with their authorization. So it's sort of changed in style a little bit, but it's the one that the police can use when you're breaking conditions, when you're breaching conditions, primarily. Um, so it's things like, um, CCTV is not working, ID scanner's not working, not enough door stuff on that kind of thing. And around about 2012, a fashion sprang up, uh, supported and encouraged and debated in actual fact by the Home Office and trained into local police forces that they could use a Section 19 closure notice to close you on the spot. So you may have heard about it, come across it. Police officers would come along, fill out a little form, hand it over to somebody responsible at the premises and say, you are in breach of these conditions um, and we expect you to comply with these conditions. And as a result, you have to close immediately. And the Home Office put out training to say, yes, that is the case. The only problem with that was it's not the case. It's actually unlawful. Uh, Section 19 closure notice is what it says on the tin. It's a notice, and it's a notice that the police are going to take the premises to court because court, magistrates' court, is the only place where they can actually secure the closure order. So the magistrates are the only ones who can say that the premises actually have to close. But the police kind of sort of stood back and squinted and fudged that a little bit by saying, well, let's work it through logically. If you are breaching your conditions, you're committing an offence under Section 136. If you're committing an offence under Section 136, then we can't allow you to carry on committing an offence, and so we could arrest you on the spot. So would you like to close now, please? Which was taking things far too far. And a case was taken by a premises called The Bank, uh, in Wakefield in 2012, client of mine, um, who decided to judicially review, because they'd been closed several times on the bounce in this way, um, partly as a training exercise uh, in those days, as it happens. But the West Yorkshire Police and the Home Office um, agreed that this was a, a suitable thing to do. And the premises took the matter to the High Court on a judicial review, and we didn't even get a case. The Home Office and the police force conceded the case and said, you're right, you're right, it's a fair cop. Uh, we can't actually close you uh, in this fashion. A Section 19 notice is just a notice. It has to go to court. We accept all of that. And they paid the premises £15,000 in damages, which is great. Uh, as 2012, why am I telling you about it in 2018? Well, as you might imagine, the um, popularity uh, and the enthusiasm for Section 19 closure notices kind of waned after that somewhat. It sort of went out of fashion for a while. 
it's coming back around. Regrettably and unfortunately, and I don't know whether this is new broom syndrome or short memory syndrome or just syndrome syndrome, but um, police are once again going out and it's spreading like wildfire around the country. I see more and more of it of serving Section 19 notices on premises where they demand for immediate closure. And that is why I'm talking about it, because it's not lawful. Uh, and if anybody needs to know more about it, um, you're very welcome to, to get in touch. But there is no way of closing premises immediately off a Section 19 notice. It's, that's the important message to take away. And um, that's why I chose to raise it again today, because it's a slightly worrying um, development. Very, very quickly, um, another change, uh, just the last word on the police, you may or may not have noticed that the Section 182 guidance, the Secretary of State Section 182 guidance changed in April. This is one of the ways in which it changed. Uh, paragraph 9.12 was quite popular with the police and with the local councillors because it said, in the part highlighted in yellow, uh, that the police had uh, special powers, essentially, uh, which they've always believed, um, but that the licensing authority, the councillors, should accept the police position on any given case unless there was evidence, good reason not to do so. That part has gone. Again, off the back of the House of Lords Select Committee recommendations, uh, because their recommendation was that the police should have no particular elevated opinion or position in these matters any more than any other responsible authority. Uh, and so now local authorities, councillors, should take into account all the representations that are made to them, all the evidence, and the police do not get any special status. So I just wanted to flag that up with you. Now, the last couple of little topics I wanted to talk about. Cumulative impact, nothing new to you uh, in principle. Bit of a pain, slightly hard work. Um, it's a policy, has been a policy up until now in the Section 182 guidance um, where local authorities can designate a particular area and make life a little harder for applicants coming in or for licensees who want to vary their license and extend them in some way and so forth. Uh, and that is on the basis that uh, the areas that are designated suffer from large numbers of concentrated people, which is a different thing from large numbers of people concentrating, which is, of course, what I have in front of me now. Possibly. Um, and as a virtue of those people in those places, you get hotspots and flashpoints and, co and competition for taxis and transport and uh, takeaway food and all of those sorts of things. And things just happen because of this concentration of licensed premises and people. Uh, and they get out of control. And they may have drunk too much. We don't know where. And here's the polar bear. And then they go on to do unspeakable things with traffic cones, which is intolerable and must be destroyed. Um, and it's not a blame game. Um, the point of cumulative impact policies, they were introduced as a facility where police and local authorities were finding it difficult to pin these effects on any individual premises. Uh, and so everybody, it appeared, was getting away scot-free. Um, debatable, obviously. But the idea of cumulative impact was to say, enough is enough. Uh, we're going to close the fort and no one else can come in unless they can demonstrate that they are not going to add to this cumulative impact. And so the burden of proof, the onus was switched to the applicant, which is different from how we normally do licensing. Onus switched to the applicant to say why they weren't going to cause a problem, uh, as opposed to responsible authorities, interested parties coming forward and saying why the grant of the license would cause a problem. So you have to rebut. Um, here are my butting goats. You have to rebut the presumption against you in a cumulative impact zone to say why you should come in 
or why um, you won't cause, uh, why, why you're uh, not going to cause any trouble. So um, it makes it all that little bit harder to do. Now, up until now, the, the cumulative impact policy has been a creature of guidance. I googled creature of guidance. This is what I got. <laughs> I was going around the country telling everybody it was a bush baby. Somebody in a conference last year shouted out, no, it's an I.I. So if you learn nothing else from me today, uh, you can take that away with you. Creature of guidance, section 182 guidance, cumulative impact policy has only up until now been in the Secretary of State's section 182 guidance. It's never been in the act. It's never been statutory. And the interesting thing about that is that it's meant that although it's very clearly set out in the section 182 guidance and the way in which authorities ought to approach it is very clearly set out in the section 182 guidance, local authorities have felt a certain amount of leeway to kind of play around with it and get a bit inventive with it and, and change it, which is uh, always a little bit dodgy. Um, it's not going to be a creature of guidance anymore. It's now been built into, cumulative impact has now been built into the Policing and Crime Act 2017. And that's quite important because it's now on a statutory footing, which is a must do. It's mandatory. The rules around cumulative impact have suddenly become consistent nationally. Local authorities ought not to mess around with it individually and make it up as they go along. Um, that's not allowed. Uh, you won't see the effect of this immediately because local authorities only have to change over to the statutory provisions the next time around that they review their statements of licensing policy because they have to make a cumulative impact assessment that goes into their statement of licensing policy. So it will be on a staggered basis. They only look at their statements of licensing policy once every five years. So it's only the next time around. It's going to be slightly different timing in different places. But in due course, you will notice this effect, that cumulative impact will come on a national and a standard footing. Uh, and that's quite important. There are 215 cumulative impact zones or areas uh, in the country. Councils have, uh, as I say, got a little bit brave about them. And so we've had um, convoluted tables and matrices of what they expect and what they don't expect. And we get some rather inventive names for them. Uh, so we get things like um, special policy areas, uh, which I've always found delightful, that the cure for stress is a spa, uh, which I, I wholeheartedly agree with. And then we get saturation zones, which sounds a bit like it's got something to do with margarine. Uh, and then we get special stress areas, which is what you will find if you ever follow me around. And then you get specially saturated cumulative impact stress areas, which is very like the family changing rooms in my local swimming pool. And all of these different names and styles that local authorities give to their um, cumulative impact zones, and it gets harder and harder, and they'll also say things to you like, your application has to be exceptional to come into our um, special stress cumulative impact horror area. And, and they don't have to be exceptional. What they have to do is to rebut the presumption against them by demonstrating they won't add to the cumulative impact, which is different. Um, what can we expect in the future? Well, cumulative impact assessments are going to have to be based on transparent facts. Facts. Imagine. And they will have to be transparent such that you will know what those facts are. Why is there a cumulative impact area in this location? Uh, where will those facts come from? Possibly the police, which brings me back to the early part of my talk. 
Um, they will also have to review their cumulative impact assessments every three years um, and check whether the facts are still justifying the ongoing uh, basis for the cumulative impact area. So these are all things that you can expect to see. Um, they're going to have to be the same up and down the country because that's kind of how law works, you know, same everywhere you go, sort of this consistency, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's what you can expect from cumulative impact in the future. It may make life a little bit easier, but certainly one to watch. Finally, and just for a couple of minutes, Kate mentioned earlier agent of change, and I did just want to touch on that because it might have passed you by. Hopefully it hasn't, but it's come in through the planning door. Now, the uh, House of Lords Select Committee also talked about the closer and closer relationship between licensing and planning, and from a practical point of view, that is true, and this might be one of the manifestations of it. Uh, agent of Change uh, was batted around in different guises for a while. It has now been enshrined in the National Planning Policy Framework, uh, which is simply a, a, a high-level policy requiring, requiring planning decision-makers to take into account the fact that a new residential developer might be going in in a nighttime economy area near to noise sources of lots of different descriptions, but music venues in particular, uh, licensed premises in particular, and to take special care about them. And I wanted to finish on a quick case study uh, that I have been working on recently, which demonstrates agent of change in practice and shows just how relevant to you it actually could be. Um, residential development going into town and city centres, nothing new, obviously. Land is a diminishing resource, uh, ever more expensive, and everybody wants to be in the accessible, sustainable hubs, and that's what planning policy encourages as well. Very often, those are the same places where you are operating and where the nighttime economy operates and so this harmonization this integration gets ever more important but up until now it hasn't had the attention that it, it requires uh, application going in in the heart of Birmingham nighttime economy two different applications actually for tower blocks 14 or so stories hundreds of units and the licensees are just busy getting on with their lives because that's what licensees do. They're far too busy to do anything else and wouldn't necessarily have noticed the blue notices going up. And the first time they would have noticed that residential development going in is some two or three years later when the residents are living there very happily in their new flat uh, in the buzzing, vibrant, nighttime economy place that they chose to live. And they realise it's really noisy <sighs> after they've moved in. And then they start to make complaints because they want it to be buzzing and vibrant and, and active when they want it to be. And then they want it to quiet and down a bit. It doesn't quite work like that. And then they make complaints and then officers go out and serve noise abatement notices and it all gets dreadful or reviews or whatever else it might be. In this scenario, uh, it's possible to catch that situation uh, at its inception, at the beginning, and that's the right time to do it. So the licensees were gently encouraged by persons who shall remain unnamed to get involved in the planning process uh, with these two developers and put in objections. In the first instance, the developer had put in a noise report to support the planning application with the local authority, and the noise report had said, noisy, noisy, blah, blah, nighttime economy, yes, problem issue, yes. Um, and we did go and take some readings of the output of the noise from the nighttime economy uh, at night. Uh, unfortunately, we couldn't take any readings because it was raining. And can we have our planning application, please? And the committee were all for going, oh, well, oh, well, I suppose so. Yes, all right, fine. Can't see a problem with that. Can you see a problem with that? I can't see a problem with that. And the licensees went, whoa, 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 whoa. Do, would it not be better to 
to take some readings so you know exactly how noisy it's going to be at night and then you can put in the right kind of glazing and mitigation and attenuation in your building to stop your residents from complaining about us in the future. Cut a long story short, they got their own noise report. And cut an even longer story short, the first developer took my clients away to a place where I was not and I wasn't invited. But they came back and said, we don't need you anymore. Um, and the developer was happy and my clients were happy and I don't know what happened, but uh, I take that as a success story. And money probably happened. And as far as the <laughs> second developer is concerned, who has not yet asked anybody to go anywhere with them in a room or otherwise me or anybody else, um, the environmental health officer suddenly woke up from a long sleep in the council and said, you know that noise report that you put in for the other development? Do you think that could be relevant for... Yeah, yeah, I think it probably, it probably could because it's, it's the same nighttime economy, isn't it? So, yeah, probably, probably still relevant. And he's, do you know what, I'm going I'm to put in a representation myself. Wow. So he has now put in a representation from an environmental health officer's point of view, from an officer of the council to the committee who are going to be making the decision on the second development, uh, saying, I don't think that's a very good idea. I think they should probably get their own noise report redone. I think they should put in mitigation in their own building. And I think they should go and put in some acoustic attenuation into the key nightclub that's putting out the biggest noise. Don't know what's going to happen there. It's a story still in the making. But it's an interesting development. And it just does go to show how you can actually make this principle work in practice, on the ground, for real. It's not a theory. It's not just a policy. It's a tool. It's one way of many that you can use it. Money works, attenuation, acoustics. I'm going to stop talking now because I've had my time. Oh, look, there's another slide. Um, <laughs> I'm not allowed to take questions, but that's who I am. I'm sticking around all evening, and if you want to talk to me later, I'm yours. Thank you, Thank you Sarah. Um, it, it isn't very often that we get to stand up at these conferences and say we had some wins, but working with Sarah both in the House of Lords on the Select Committee uh, and on some of our cases, I think there are some really key wins that perhaps people don't register and members don't realise how much we've, we've achieved on your behalf. They might be small, it might have taken 10 years to get there, but getting a win around agent of change, getting that written into legislation and giving you the tools to get some money back to protect your businesses and your livelihood is key making sure that the police can't be taken at face value. There's so many times over the last decade where the police's word has just been accepted as gospel by a local authority or by politicians. Having that changed will be immeasurable. And the third one around closure notices, where we hope that we'll have some further successes and that we are, have promises from the government that they will change the guidance to take account of that, will hopefully make your lives better in the going forward. So um, they are small changes, but they will have a big effect. And um, we are closing today's session with a panel that is going to talk about this and lots of the other issues that we've talked about and touched on today to do with people, to do with regeneration, to talk to the future of the, the, the nighttime economy and the, the whether it's a glass half empty and a glass half full. Please, can you welcome to the stage Tokyo Industries founder Aaron Meller, Richard Hamlin of First Merchant, Peter Marks of Deltic Group, Tom Kidd of Adventure Bars, and Lord Smith of Hindhead, who are going to discuss with me the regulatory panel and the challenges we're facing. Give you gentlemen a chance to come up on stage.
got a fantastic panel to conclude. He's got countless years' worth of experience. I'll be kind. I'll sit here. <laughs> I do, however, feel that I am once again the bit of diversity in the panel. Um, Sooner or later, we must do something. To, on Wednesday, we have a uh, new UK hospitality initiative that is looking at diversity and inclusion and uh, seeking to promote and support particularly women in hospitality, but a more diverse and inclusive hospitality offer. Welcome, Lord Smith. Um, I will just go along the panel, allow you to introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit who you are, and then we'll get straight into topics. Peter. Oh, surely you must all know me by now. It's all very boring. Peter Marks, Chief Executive, Delta Group, 37 years in the late-night economy and still going strong. <laughs> Somehow. Richard. <laughs> Richard Hamlin, First Merchant, funding uh, restaurants, bars, <coughs> clubs, hotels in the London area, 25 years, still going strong. Excellent. Uh, Lord Smith of Hindhead, but it's such a mouthful. Philip is much easier. Uh, I've been running conservative clubs for 31 years now, so I know a little bit about the, uh, my particular trade, but I was also on the House of Lords Select Committee, uh, which uh, Ms. Calabra has just mentioned. And can I just say, you all look so young compared with the audience I'm used to uh, looking at. And you're all awake as well, which is even better. Is that, is that in the conservative clubs or the House of Lords? In the House of Lords. Okay. Uh, Tom Kidd of Venture Bars. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to tell us who Adventure Bars are for those who don't know? Uh, yeah, we've got eight sites in London. We operate Blame Gloria, uh, tonight Josephine Bar Elba. Yeah. And uh, Eric Mellor, Tokyo Industries, um, 20 years in the business. We operate 36 sites around the UK and internationally in Los Angeles, Croatia, and Ibiza. I'm going to start over at the, the far side of the panel because I want to talk about investment a little bit because, Peter, you're very always outspoken about the need to invest in the nighttime economy and that it's a secure investment opportunity and yes. that we need to be proud of what we're doing. Do you want to tell us a, a well, little bit yes, about why you think... Well, yes, first of all, it would be lovely if we didn't ever have to spend any money whatsoever and we could just milk the cash cow forever, but somehow it doesn't seem to work like that. Uh, and so what we need to do is that we need to uh, have a, a stable... Uh, environment of which people can take long-term views uh, uh, to make sure they get their money back to start with and then can carry on uh, sort of basically making some more before they need to reinvest their money. It's important, therefore, that we have a good regulatory environment, an, an even uh, plateau, as it were, uh, that we're not disadvantaged, so that funders such as private equity or banks or, uh, of course, uh, IPO market actually think this is a good place to put their money. And if they are scared off by some of the crazy stuff that does happen, thankfully it's still rare and it's nothing like uh, you know, sort of the majority, but it, you know, it's not good. And uh, we have, especially at this, you know, in our, the late night sector, have suffered far too much from uh, reputational damage, most of which is utter rubbish. But it's there, and uh, so we've got to do uh, is, is do, we have to fight, it was really refreshing to hear so many of what was said today, but in particular, the last speaker for me, because we've got to fight hard to push away councils and police from bullying, especially independent operators on the ground, uh, who then just give up. Philip, do you want to, to come in on that? Because was, that was a key theme that came out of the House of Lords Select Committee, was 
the, you know, the police and the local authorities overstretching themselves, making life difficult for operators, and, and actually partnership being a better alternative? I think we highlighted that, and, uh, and I'm very pleased that a lot of what we said uh, has actually been accepted by the uh, Home Office now. But can I touch on another point, if I may? I want to just touch on, I think that there are uh, three important statistics which everybody in our industry, whether it's in the daytime or in the nighttime, need to be aware of. Uh, and one of these, uh, I think, applies specifically to, uh, uh, to everyone here. The first is that, as a nation, our relationship with alcohol has changed. Uh, we are drinking at less as a nation than we were 10, 10 years ago, even more. It's down by about 17%, 14 to 17%. The second is that about 70% of all alcohol now is now purchased uh, through the off-trade, not on the on-trade. And as much as a fifth of that is purchased online, and the third, it's estimated that about 40% of all alcohol is now purchased by only 10% of the adult population. So as a nation, we're drinking less. What we are drinking, we tend to buy through the off-trade, and a smaller number of us are purchasing a significant proportion of alcohol. It's the first one which, which I think affects the nighttime industry more than anything else. It's because young people's relationship with alcohol has changed dramatically. Uh, uh, I think the last statistic, 2015-16, one in five people described themselves as not being drinkers at all, and the number of young people uh, not drinking has increased by some 41%. Now, as an industry where you are primarily attracting people who are younger, I think that is the challenge uh, which uh, this particular part of our industry uh, has to face. Uh, and it's about uh, uh, engaging with that new audience, offering something which they want, not just what Peter said about uh, uh, investing in the fabric of what you've got on offer, but the product and the staff training and everything else, uh, 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 is that people want to, to go out, but they don't always want to drink alcohol. Uh, they want something else, and whether that's coffee or whatever it is, or whether it's great Wi-Fi so that they can still gamble online. Interesting enough, young people are gambling more than they used to, but they're not drinking as much as they are used to, which is an interesting uh, another, it, it makes it harder to win. It, does, it does make it harder to win, but when, <laughs> but when you, you lose, it dulls the edges a bit. Uh, and, and so I think that you know, that is going to be an interesting, uh, a particularly challenging part uh, for the nighttime economy, which is such an important one and such a vibrant one. I mean, we do some great stuff, uh, but the challenges ahead are going to be, I think, in that area, uh, and hopefully uh, we can deal with all of that without having the difficulty from ill-informed uh, police licensing officers and councils sometimes who tend to knee-jerk, uh, 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 as we've already heard. Erin, mm. uh, you must find that as well, with sort of the need to invest in more experiential leisure and the, and the, the, the change towards festivals. I think we heard from CGA earlier that, you know, 58% are willing to be re-engaged in the nighttime economy, but they're looking for something different and they're looking for that immersive experience. Yeah, it's almost like we're moving away from a kind of the, the product economy into kind of a, an imagination economy where we're kind of creating people the imagination of a great time or something completely different. Um, so rather than that just be going to see a DJ or just going to see a, a certain night or a certain band, you're kind of creating an environment that's fully immersive and you're doing a lot more. So it's almost like a, a theatre that changes every week and you're not fully sure what you're going to experience when you get there, but you hopefully go away with a lot of Instagramable memories that you share with your friends. And are you finding the same, Tom, in, in your businesses? Obviously, yours are a, a younger demographic as well. And are they looking for that experience? 
Yeah, yeah, they are. I think mm, I, I personally think the the death of the alcohol thing narrative that's been banded around a little bit is slightly overstated. I imagine there's segments where that does occur in, but in where we're trading in London, people are still going out, going large, and having big nights out. So. Think and is, it, that what, is that it, what makes it an attractive investment proposition, Richard? Is yes, it? Well, well, we lend rather than invest. That's a very important distinction from our point of view, mm. that we let people get on with it. We're very um, pro-debt, anti-equity, uh, so people are free once they've repaid us. Uh, we don't own their company. Um, we don't interfere with their management or anything like that. But uh, just uh, speaking about people still going large, what I've noticed from the feedback from our uh, group of... Um, clients in this particular area of hospitality is that they, they're demanding more from that going large. So if they are drinking, for example, the craft beer chain that we um, have helped finance, you know, they, they can't just have seven or eight really good beers. They've got to have loads of them and they've got to change every week. That's what people want. So the, the game's getting better and better and that's a good thing, I think. So the future of nighttime is is positive. We're, we're getting more choice. We've got a, a better educated consumer and we've got more product that they can go to. Uh, uh, what's, what's holding us back? What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Right. Well, I guess, first of all, picking up on Philip's point there, because I, I buy what you're saying, but we've had this enormous shrinkage in... Uh, in the offer of, mm. of the oversupply. So that, a, lot, a lot of that is adjusted. And people often say to me, well, how do you keep up with the trends. Well, the late night economy has always been sort of the first to change, needing to change all of the time. Every single year you have another 18-year-old that can drink. So you've never been able to sit on your hands and sort of say, oh, right, well, you know, we're going to carry on doing what we used to do 30 years ago. You just can't do that. You never can. And so, from my point of view, we're so used to it. That's the environment that we live in. We will always be people who are creative, that can, uh, I guess, mould to whatever it is that uh, uh, people are expecting. And of course, the key is to keep in touch with your customers mm. uh, and understand the latest trends, which basically means employing people younger than me. <laughs> yes, even younger than <laughs> me. Even younger than yes. you. You mean you're not at the cutting edge of trends? Funnily enough. Or turning to somebody who will be at the cutting edge of trends then. So how do you keep on top of all of those trends, how do you keep it fresh and come up with the new ideas? It's keeping in touch with creatives, really, and keeping different ideas moving forward all the time and not kind of resting on the things that you did last week, last month, last year, and also changing up with market trends. It's so difficult to book, you know, D DJ talent now in particular, mm. um, as the offers, which used to be a 15K DJ, now is 30, 35K DJ. It, you just can't deliver that in a 2,000 capacity club. So you have to kind of work out different ways of giving people that experience that isn't fully about a headline DJ. Mm. And how how world-beating are we? I mean, you, you go out and you do a lot in Ibiza and you, you're Las Vegas and, and Croatia and the festivals. How, how cutting edge mm. is the London and the UK scene? Music is one of, of the UK's biggest exports. And this is what councils and, and the government need to understand is that without these music venues, mm. we're, we're losing one of Britain's biggest exports. Mm. You know, it's most of Vegas is now run by British expats who are now controlling the scene out there. Likewise, Los Angeles. Um, I've just come back from a, a Red Bull Music Academy trip to Berlin, where they're doing some incredible, creative, cutting-edge things that we just wouldn't be allowed to get away with in the UK because things like massive rates bills or, mm. or the lack of government assistance in that kind of cultural aggregation, that cultural acceleration, just doesn't exist in the UK. Whereas in places like Berlin, 
they are so in tune with that and they're creating these 24-hour cities that are that are actually working, whereas in the UK, we just seem to be getting the flat for the bad parts of it and not the good parts. Yeah, well, that's something I'm working on changing, but I think that that's, that's a really interesting point, that, that our politicians don't seem to recognise us for the world-beating, world-class export that we are. How can we get that message across better? I think we just need to remind everybody as often as we can that the London nighttime economy alone is estimated at 26 billion a year. Uh, and although London is a 24-hour city, it doesn't have a 24-hour uh, a licence culture yet. Uh, I mean, mm. if you go out at three in the morning, it is quite difficult to find somewhere that is going to be open where you can walk in and have a drink. If you've never been here, here before, if you know your way around I'll, and you're I'll used to... And you're okay, new, well. listen, <laughs> if, if you know your way around and you're used to going large the whole time... <laughs> I, mean, I've no, which I don't is, think I've said that. Phrase, uh, which I have to say is my theme uh, for the whole day. In fact, the rest of my day is going to be going large. Uh, 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 then you know where to go. But I think there's only one iconic central London location which is open 24 hours a day. House of Lords? Every day of the year. <laughs> so, <laughs> apart from that, uh, and you're always welcome to come along, Thank you, uh, uh, um, is the Hippodrome. We can walk in any time, mm. 24 hours a day, every single day of the mm. week. They he never knows. lock the door. They mm. never shut the door. So you can always go there and, and have a drink. But, uh, you know, some of the other clubs are perhaps less well-known. But I do think, uh, uh, even though um, it's not my uh, political uh, uh, side, uh, the uh, London mayor, I think that the appointment of the night czar was good. And I think that, uh, you know, she has been a force for good. And I think that now she's got the full-term appointment uh, that the work which is already done, hopefully they can build on that. Mm. And um, but I think that London's such an it's such a great place to be. It's a capital of the world. It would just be nice to see it a little bit more as a twenty-four hour place to be. Mm. Tom, you're, you're a London operator. What are the challenges of operating in London, in particular, that that, that hold us back from being that twenty-four hour city? Well, that's licensing. Yeah, licensing. You, know, um, you still find it challenging, even as well, a. If you're on a 24-hour economy, you've got to be able to trade for 24 hours. It's a, it's not, is it? You can trade till two, three o'clock. Yeah. Most areas you can't go any later than that. So unless you want to trade in kebabs and Ubering, then it's not a 24-hour economy at all, is it? No. No. And to I, be fair, the legislation is in place. Yes, yeah. It's oh, yeah, just, yeah. It's just, it's, it's, the council's just interested to, out, to exactly. find out how easy you find it to exploit that licensing. Or how well, if, if you, so, Westminster, if you haven't got a 2 a.m. and you want to trade, so whatever license you have now, if you're an A4 operator in Westminster, that will be your license, unless, as, as discussed in the last thing, that's going to be your license forever, unless you are able to come up with some crazy legal loophole that no one has come up with yet. You and then that loophole gets shut, mm. you know, because well, you know, like the last time they changed cumulative impact was like Zubar, which was, mm. you know, it just doesn't happen. So they don't want a late night economy beyond 2am, otherwise they would be more open to those things, surely. Mm. Well, that, that seems to be the trend in London councils. It seems to be going backwards, not forwards, if you look at what Hackney's doing as well. And, and what about, uh, Charlie spoke earlier about the challenges of recruitment in London. Are, are they as acute in the late-night economy as they are in, in certain uh, areas of hospitality? Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't speak for the others, but it's, it's always very, very difficult recruiting good people, I expect, in any industry, but it's not getting any easier, especially with the... We don't know what's happening. What is Brexit? Brexit. Who the fuck knows? No one knows. So all the people who <laughs> m may, may or may not have been coming 
Less of them are coming now. Mm. We see that statistically. Yeah, it's, it's hard recruiting. It always has been, and it, it's not getting any easier, mm. I don't think. And Dare I say, actually, just as a, a contrary view, I've been around a lot of cities of the world, and this 24-hour is slightly blown out of all proportion. I'd, I was in Barcelona with some of the team. We were kicked off our table in Las Ramblas at 1 a.m. and sent off home. Uh, because actually there isn't a huge demand late on. So we, there is, whilst there is the, the legislation and the, and the structure to be able to do it, how often do we see uh, you know, that there's crowds of people that you'd actually want in at 4.30 a.m. is an issue. And of course, when we're talking about, because um, London is different, Tom, you know, uh, when you talk about, um, should we say, recruitment, one of the problems is the hours that we're all mm. keeping and asking them to do and that final hour being pushed out. It's hard work to get people who are sort of bright, maybe be the universities to sort of come in when they're saying, by the way, you're going to get home at 7 o'clock uh, tomorrow morning and we'll expect you in at 12. Mm. You know, there are challenges here. Yeah. So that stretch, we're stretching it thinner. And are you uh, foreseeing that there'll be an impact in terms of Brexit on recruitment outside I think of London? We're probably the less? least impacted because we're not in London. We don't serve food and we don't have a lot of um, European staff uh, just by accident rather mm. than design. So we're probably less uh, affected than most. Okay. And Erin, one of the things that people have talked about less in terms of hospitality is the impact that it's going to have on musicians and DJs who are coming over to perform. Are you anticipating that being a particular challenge? I don't think it will be really. I think um, people want to tour the UK anyway, um, so I think there, you know, it's be a different version of permitting. Um, nobody really knows what's going to happen with Brexit, and that will work both ways. Really, we don't really know what's going to happen with the rest of Europe. But I can't see any major impacts <coughs> from my point of view. Okay, and then what impact is Brexit having on on lending and investment decisions? Is are people reluctant to do any lending in the wake of all the uncertainty? Well, I don't know what's causing it, but um, other banks seem to have moved away from uh, restaurants towards wet lead. Mm -hmm. They still quite like those sort of uh, yeah, establishments. The CVAs, aren't it? Yeah. Yeah, that would yeah, be yeah, the... Yeah. the, the, the yeah. um, but uh, I, I don't know whether it's, it's linked to Brexit. I really couldn't say. I think we should just stop talking about Brexit. Okay. I think the best quote on Brexit <laughs> is the one that said, you know, a minute ago, and I'm going to use it in the next debate, who the fuck knows, because this is... I can come to the debate if you want. I'm picking up so much useful stuff. <laughs> yeah, Lines to go, live by. I'm going to be going large and just saying... <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, on the theme of who the fuck knows, um, what, what's you, what do you think is the biggest challenge that we've got coming up? What would you like the government to do to help the nighttime economy? Or actually recognise it as a good place, so not the enemy, but yeah. a friend and something that actually, if you look at the nighttime and the daytime economy, they are linked. And do you know what? If you actually shut all the bars and nightclubs and you run round and some councils and police are like, spike on off that dog off Tom and Jerry barking away at us all and so we all sort of stay in and never come out again well then what happens is of course you end up with the shops the nail bars start sh shutting and the hairdressers start shutting and the clothes stop shutting there's this understanding I've definitely got this sea change this feel this oil tank is turning and there's this ah maybe these are all right maybe partly because retail is in such disarray because of online and out of town and there's only two other answers and that's leisure and resi, mm. and if we can somehow work out how to live side by side, yes, it's as obvious as zoning, then actually we should be okay. We're getting there, I think. I do definitely feel fairly optimistic about that. I was gonna say, so you're a glass half full. 
Uh, I always am. Yeah. But for this time, I've got a reason. Yeah. And in terms of the, the, the biggest threats, is it still business rates that are one of the big threats? It's, it's this pecking away at our margins. That's what it's 1% here, 1% there every year. Business rates are, you know, for us, half a percent. And uh, uh, national living wage, minimum wage, that's, you know, 1.5%. And duty, if we didn't put our prices up, another half percent. You know, we need to have a good... Uh, solid, investable, top-to-bottom-line KPI P&L. And that's, it's that nibbling away, and, and business rates is just one of them. It's an annoying one, and everyone sort of latches onto it as a big one, but to me, it's a number of them. And, you know, I've seen an, a margin erosion of around about 3% in three years. I think that the nighttime economy also needs to try and get away from the reputation it has that there's always yeah. trouble involved. Yes. It's the problems involved. And yet, you know, those of us who have been involved or know a bit about it, probably, a per, you know, we do understand that people who cause difficulties who have had too much alcohol usually turn up at night having already had too yeah. much alcohol, which they've purchased through the supermarkets or wherever they've, they've got it. So they come out at night already tanked up, and then it goes wrong. It tends yeah. not to be the people who turn up sober and then have a drink. Yeah. And then it goes wrong. And so there has to be, you know, there is, there tends to be a bit of a, a blame game, which was mm. mentioned earlier, all about the nighttime economy, which I think is unfair. And we have to educate people about that. Mm. But the other point you mentioned that we are the only really, I think that we are the only industry left, daytime and nighttime, who are investing in high streets. We're spending money on high street mm. establishments. We're keeping our high streets actually going. And we need to talk about that. We need to talk about all the positives we do, the amount of revenue we produce, the number of people who we employ, uh, and, and, and speak about all of those uh, more than we do at the moment. Mm. And Aaron, you're, you're investing in various high streets, regeneration, town centres, up and down the, the north in particular, Bradford and, and Manchester, and, and also Lost Village Festival, um, trying, to trying to create an experience from nothing, are you finding that local authorities and local businesses are, are more keen to have that experience on High Street? Yeah, generally supportive, really. I mean, the problem with with all the press is that you only hear about a very small percentage of really bad things that happen in late night, and nobody goes out there waving flags and saying, "Look at all these great people who've been mm. out had a really fantastic time." You know, Lost Village, fifteen thousand people, not one arrest. You, you know, nobody goes out talking about that. You know, it feels like the press would only latch up on it if something bad happened, and that it's just trying to change that negative a negative story into a really positive headline mm. and moving that forward. And what else would it, you find be helpful for government or commercial environment to change that would help your business develop further? Uh, things like the Night Czar is definitely really helpful. I think it'd be a lot more helpful in Manchester now. We've got Sasha mm. from the Wares Project who fully understands nightclubs. I think the appointment in London was possibly more theatre-based than somebody mm. who actually understands music venues and late night. Um, whereas I think the, the more councils adopt that approach of a Night Czar a night ambassador, that's probably a good thing. I was just saying, I'm not sure there's much point in having a night czar if they don't have any actual ability to influence what's going on. So it felt very much like a figurehead sort of appointment. So what would you like to see? Well, <laughs> what, what? you don't put someone in a role like that and not give them any power. Yeah. Not, you know, talk about the pros and cons of that person in that role. But it's just a hollow role, right? It's just a person who goes out and says... Yeah, like, which is, you know, yeah, beat, beat the drum and all that so sort of stuff. But the champion, but it needs to have be backed up with real powers, real responsibilities. More influence. More influence. Otherwise, it's just a person who's just on the TV, isn't it? 
What's the fucking point? Do you know, that's another great quote. <laughs> so useful. Look and learn. But in terms of thinking about your commercial environment, your trading environment, leaving aside the night star, right. what would you find most helpful in terms of developing further? What's the biggest challenge, biggest opportunity? Well, there's, there's, I don't know. It's, it's too big a question. There's, too, there's, there's always so many challenges and opportunities, aren't there? But, yeah, uh, all the stuff Peter said, that's all, all the case, isn't it? Stop, you know, leave us alone. Let us get on with... You know, we shouldn't let people get into trouble, but let us trade and... trade sensibly, and we'll, we'll make a load of money for the government. It's kind of like, just let us get on with it. And, so you'd like the Knights are to uh, use her influence to uh, encourage more 24-hour uh, licensing? As I mean, that's where I trade, so that would be... That would be um, I think generally there's, you know, yeah, just... Uh, I don't know. I just can't fathom why you would have a role like that that has no influence. Seems reasonable. Okay. Just lip service, isn't it? Mm. The night economy are kicking off, right, let's give them Knights are. What's this person do? Yeah. I thought yeah. the same as you to start with, right. but I think that she's actually gathering some pace now. Right. And After I would what, hope. 18 months? Well, uh, politics takes a long bedding time. Bedding in, bedding uh, oh, in. Sorry. Uh, bedding in, but if she can, by the end of her term, use that influence to um, hopefully get more of a 24 hour economy, that would be a good thing, wouldn't it? And I'm saying that. She's not my political party, but uh, uh, um, I think that there could be some benefits to this in the longer term. I have a feeling that I did when this band was on stage, that I've lost the stage again. Oh. I've really stolen my stage. But I'm conscious of time and I'm conscious of people's drinks. So I, I'm just going to give one quick question to, to wrap up. Um, whether you're optimistic or pessimistic for the future of our sector. Optimistic. Optimistic. Quietly optimistic. I do like Luke Johnson did when he came up and went, you're all fucked. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm quite positive. <laughs> that was last year. That's what he did. Pretty much, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I'm, I'm very not positive. sure it was Luke. Yeah. I you're, think it was. Uh... You're, you're all, you're all knackered, but I can buy you on a yeah, cheap yeah, that's exactly Pretty true. much what you said. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. You're all fucked. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite positive. You're quite... <laughs> Personally. I'd hate to see you on a pessimistic. No, no, I think it's a great, it's a great time to be alive. What are you talking about? It's, 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 <laughs> this is, uh... I can't wait for the next debate in the House of Lords on life. Super optimistic, yeah. Excellent. That's a positive note to end on. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining us. Please join me in thanking the panel. We now have... We now have a short break before those of you who are joining us at Café de Paris at 7 o'clock can come for drinks and the Dust Till Dawn Late Night Awards. We hope as many of you as are able to come and join us. In the meantime, uh, a number of people are going up to Hedden Street to look at Tank and Paddle. Please join us for a drink at Tank and Paddle and then we will see you at Café de Paris at 7. Thank you.